You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to the very latest episode of Unfiltered, which features the person who has probably, in the in the early days of this podcast, been requested by more people than any other as a potential subject for the interview. I, I speak, of course, of John Ronson, and he will be talking uh, a lot, but by no means exclusively, about his latest project, The Butterfly Effect, which is a, a seven-part audio series, or, or podcast, as the kids call them, um, looking at the changing nature of the porn industry, which might sound a little bit um, uh, sort of sleazy and or um, vicarious, but it's actually anything anything but. It's absolutely fascinating, and, and it begins, really, with him seeing a hotel receptionist the way that the receptionist looked at a porn star that he was meeting in his hotel in Los Angeles for a different project. And just from that tiny seed, this is one of the things I love about Ronson, from that tiny seed, you know, hours and hours of first class, first person reportage evolved. We'll, we'll find out how now. So welcome to Unfiltered John Ronson. It's a, a genuine pleasure to have you here. Mm. As I had a mouthful of tea, it was lovely. To, it's lovely to see you. I, I started that deliberately as you as you reached for your mug. It's the first <laughs> the first sip past your lips. I thought I'd dive in and, and yeah. start the tape. Let, let, let's begin with when we last met, because you came on my radio show about a year ago, almost to the day, and, and Donald Trump had just been elected mm. U.S. president. I made a clumsy attempt to blame it all on you for bringing Alex Jones right. kind of into the mainstream. Yeah, but you know what? He would have like he was going to make it without me. With or without me, Alex Jones was going to make it. Although I have been held responsible for Trump's rise a couple of times over the last year because um, I was the man who kind of gave the world Alex Jones for the first time. And then, you know, extraordinarily, Alex suddenly gained power because yes. Donald Trump was a fan of his, you know. Have, his... You, have you spoken to him since? Alex, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we text from time to time. Um, I I've been kind of poking around his world the last the last year or so and and um, I, I haven't done anything with it and I don't know what to do with it but Alex got wind of it okay and left a long voicemail message and texted me and uh, you know try, I think try to work out whether I was what, what your angle yeah was whether I was friend or foe he, he's quite he's quite symbolic actually of the things that interest you isn't he in a way because you're trying to almost make sense you, you presume there must be a point at which a penny will drop when you investigate these people and everything will make sense but mm. part of the charm of some of your work is that possibly it never does because it I, can't yeah alex is kind of a he is the sort of like he's a kind of wall that you end up just banging your nose against um you, you can't break through uh, especially because alex has kind of got worse mm. over the 20 years you know most people you would think you know when they accumulate the flotsam and jetsam of life's tragedies become more empathetic yes, and yes. more sort of you know understanding of other people's issues but alex has has kind of descended rather than ascended of of the last kind of 20 years well, i suppose he'd argue that it's working so why on earth would he retreat from the from the position when it's earned him the ear of a president it, it, true and he you know i think alex does care about his Ethno-nationalism. His ethno-nationalism. Yeah. This, this, of course, was in Them, Adventures with Extremists, and you came back to it in the Kindle book last year. The elephant an elephant in the, in the room. room. Ad Adventures with Extremists, oddly, I mean, it's almost ended up casting Ian Paisley in the role of the moderate, hasn't it, in the, in the aftermath? Because the other person that you spent time with for that was Omar Bakri Mohammed, who you saw as quite a comical character, and yet who has been seen to have inspired genuine now, mm. sort of 16 years later, he has inspired genuine terrorists. And and now Omar Bakri's in jail in Beirut in right, solitary yeah. confinement, possibly for the rest of his life. And his son, his very sweet little mm. boy, Mohammed, mm. who I remember being within Hyde Park like 20 years ago, and, and he was saying how scared he was that his father was going to get into trouble because... Um, he just watched the biography of Malcolm X and he was right. worried that his father was going to end up getting like assassinated and poor, sweet, you know, lovely little kid. I can't, I don't know what age he was, but maybe 12, 13, mm. something like that. Um, I really, you know, empathised with him uh, a couple of years ago. He joins ISIS and then gets killed by ISIS. 
ISIS turn out to be terrible bosses. Yes. Um, <laughs> but try, I felt really upset when I heard that. Of course. Like, like poor sweet kid, you know. Never had a chance. Clo- yeah, you close your eyes, you open them again, and he's an ISIS fighter getting getting murdered. The world has turned. Yeah. If 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 we then sought to sort of identify what prompts you to paint a target on something, hmm. what would what what's your kind of thinking on that front for me the the men who stare at goats possibly which is where you looked at the american army's employment of weird new that possibly is any any definition of a ronson topic i can come up with sometimes i think the men who stares at goats undermines the definition uh, yeah i think so the minister oh, do you wow yeah no i agree um the minister at goats is the only thing i ever did under pressure right okay uh, did, um so i always think of it as like the kind of you know, of all of my children, it's the kind of errant sort of child that's sort of a bit disformed. Because so thematically, so yeah, well, the, it's uh, everyday craziness that interests you. That was the subtitle of your Guardian collection. Yeah. And, and, the, and the men who stare at goats is anything but everyday craziness. It's, it's standout, extraordinary craziness. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a few reasons why I don't love the men who stare at goats as much as the other things that I've done. It's probably... I, I kind of love everything I've done, of course. kind of, and there's bits of the Men of Goats that I really like, um, but I basically don't like it as much um, for a few reasons. So what what had happened was uh, I'd had I just had my first hit, uh, the book Them had come out, yes. and um, and and there was a documentary series to go alongside it called Secret Rulers of the World. It was the first time I'd ever done anything that was a hit. You know, Them had made it into the bestseller list, and Secret Rulers of the World was getting like great reviews and big viewing figures, and um, and I didn't know what to do next. And and my my basically Channel Four. And this has never happened really to me since. And I'm glad, even though what I'm about to say, well, it's a poison chalice, basically. I, Channel 4 said, here's half a million pounds. Do, you know, go off and make some more films. And and I was like, even then, I was like, this. I don't think this is going to end well. Because um, at the same time, there was this guy called Matt Collins. Do you remember Matt? He's an art critic. He yes. made this, he'd made this amazing uh, show called This Is Modern Art. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. and... <clears throat> BBC or Channel 4 had said to him, like, here's some more money, make some more. And he then made this terrible show called Hello Culture. Right. And I was thinking, yes. shit, I hope, I hope whatever I do next isn't going to be Hello Culture. Um, <laughs> and it was um, it was kind of nightmare. We were going back and forward um, to America, not getting anything. I was, like, going crazy. I was getting, like, living in constant motion sickness, missing my kid growing up. We'd go, like, all the way to America and... We just wouldn't get anything usable. We were like flailing around. So it was really unpleasant and stressful. And then finally we found the story of the Menestate Goats. Yes. Um, and that felt like a real breakthrough. But I tell you what the problem was. I like I never I went through no I went through no personal change doing that story. Everything else I've done, I've gone through a change. Like with the psychopath test, I became a kind of, you know, uh, like a sort of power crazed psychopath spotter, which then gave me the ability to like tell stories about how mental health labeling can can be kind of tyrannical. Yes. yes. Uh, and the same with, say, so being publicly shamed. I kind of completely changed my mind about, you know, outrage online. And, and but with the minister at goats, like, I never believed it was possible to kill a goat just by staring at it. So I could never tell the story in the kind of empathetic way that I always like to. They, they, I could never truly get inside their heads because I'd never believed that those powers were real. That makes perfect sense to me then. I, I, mm. I was a little nervous about suggesting that it might somehow stand out from the rest of the canon. And we'll move on to the butterfly effect, the latest, um, the latest project, which looks at the kind of um, proliferation of of a new kind of pornography, but does does fit the same parameters of finding out how extraordinary things are unfolding in the same environment that you live in. I, I for me, I think most people have got a sort of John Ronson pivot moment where they realised, I mean, they, they realise you're a bit special. Oh. For me, it was it was it was the article that you wrote about the um, the hypnotist disciple when you wrote so honestly about your own genuine crippling fear that every time you weren't with your wife and child, something terrible was going to happen to them. And you yeah. wanted to eventually find a way of training yourself out of that mindset. And it took you into the world of 
sort of it, it, not Paul McKenna, but that type of yeah. No, Paul McKenna was he is involved, involved in it, yeah. isn't he? And Richard Bandler. It's true. I I I used to suffer from a kind of crippling anxiety that if I couldn't get my wife and son on the phone, um, they they were dead. Yes. Um, and I would picture how they had died. Um, sometimes. When my when my son was really young, my wife had fallen down the stairs, was lying at the bottom of the stairs with a broken neck, a kettle was boiling, and my son was reaching up for the flex of a of a just boiled kettle um, as I was phoning and the phone was ringing out. Uh, yeah, I, honestly, I just felt really upset just even re- remembering. I can, that. Well, I, well, obviously, and it was that level of. Yeah, self-examination that made me think, "Crikey, this is a guy I should be reading every week." So, oh. I, so I did, and that that would be how long ago would that be now? Uh, that would, well, my son's nineteen now. Yeah, so um, pretty much most of his life ago. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't. Yeah, so Paul McKenna kind of cured me. He hypnotized yes. me and cured me of of when I when my wife didn't pick up the phone. I no longer think she's dead, but. I never asked him to cure me about my son because he was just a baby at the time. So I, I couldn't kind of imagine that one day he'd be old enough to pick up the phone. So now, if I can't get my son on the phone, I still think he's dead. Oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> so Paul McKenna half cured me. <laughs> and, and what that perhaps suggested to me was that you, you think that by completely, uh, it's almost sort of with unbelievable levels of honesty, by examining... A subject in this case yourself by going in so completely you might achieve some sort of solution you might achieve some sort of resolution and when you, you, don't, you if you can do it with your own life as you attempted to do in that which was only ever a magazine article i think yeah it, it, it ended up in a collection i got lost at sea but yes. it, was, it was just going to be for the guardian and if you can do it with your own life mm. then that that almost to the date because you'd had your film about clubbed class, trying to blag your way into the jet set, your, your book rather, into the jet set mm-hmm. lifestyle. But as you say, well, your first hit was them, Adventures with Extremists. It was almost as if you then took what in the column was a was a, a forensic examination of your own existence in search of answers, and then you moved it on to forensic examinations of much bigger mysteries in the hope of finding answers. Yeah, I think so. Um I think the reason why I started writing about myself and my own frailties was because I felt very annoyed with people who do the kind of thing that I do, but from a position of moral superiority. How do you mean? Um, People, you know, people who consider themselves like representatives of righteous society. So, so for instance, I'm I'm trying to think of a good example. I, I, I'm, I, I feel very anti-hierarchical. So the kind of story where somebody like me would, um, you know, go to say, a, I don't know, a neo-Nazi compound. Mm. No, neo-Nazi compound's the wrong, that's the, that's the wrong sure. example because- We can all, yeah, there yeah, is they, an objective. Exactly, they ought to be um, taken down. A Porn's bit. not a bad example. Yeah, porn is a very good example. Because um, I, I, I've just done this yes. like year long um, adventure into the, in looking at the tech takeover of the porn industry and pretty much every journalist who goes into the porn world does it from a position of moral superiority uh, okay. the, the porn people are not humans to them by and large they're kind of um, uh, ingredients in their preconceived ideology of the mm. story that they want to tell mm. and the story could be about how porn is bad or it could be about how Porn performers are, are all exploited, um, but there's always some prejudgment. And and when you fill your head with ideology and prejudgment, what what there's no space for curiosity and and and, and a kind of shared humanity. You're trying to fit the facts to your preconception rather than yeah. trying to find them out there for yourself and you. Yeah, and you know, I used to do that when I was when I was younger to to an extent. Um, you know, but I kind of matured my way out of it. And 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 so the reason why I, I sort of write about my own yeah. frailties is because I think it, it puts me on a level playing field with the. With, with the people I write about who are more obviously frail. Rather than having that kind of artistic distance, you're yeah. writing from inside the tent. Exactly. And, you know, rather than that kind of I'm better than you. Or what yeah. the thing I really hate is like when the, you know, when the, the journalist is like, in a sort of unspoken way, is like, I am normal 
um, I am, you know, I am the norm. Um, there's a line towards the end of So You've Been Publicly Shamed where I say um, the great thing, where I say that um, on social media we like to see ourselves as nonconformists, but all of this is creating a much more conformist, <laughs> conservative world. Yeah. You know, look, we're saying we are normal. This is the average. Yeah. We are... We are uh, defining the boundaries of normality by tearing apart the people outside of it. And, you know, that's why I'm against some shaming campaigns on social media, um, because it's it's doing that. Whereas if you ask about your own frailties, then you're not a representative of conformist conservative society. You're on the same, you know, you're on the same level playing field as the yes. people you're asking about. It takes a degree of personal confidence, though. You, you, you mean, because it, it's almost contradictory to describe the anxieties that you have suffered from, but also to be comfortable enough in your own skin to expose it all. Yeah. Um, you know, I think mental health stigma has really changed just yes. in my lifetime. Yes. Um, I think people who were, you know, I remember growing up in Cardiff, like if somebody had like mental health issues, it was like they were like the kind of, um, mm. you know, crazy person down the street that you wanted to avoid. And I think people really feel that way at all anymore. I, I think a whole bunch of people came along um, and I was one of them with anxiety, um, but, you know, other people with, you know, depression or, you know, whatever it was that they were, you know, yes. that they had, who were just very open and honest about it. And, and I think um, uh, that sort of moved. That changes kind of, everything. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it's emerged entirely unintentionally as something of a theme in, in these you know, we're still in the first dozen episodes of Unfiltered, but but in the early days, from odd odd people like Russell Brand leading into Alistair Campbell, but all speaking to the same truth mm. that you just described, that simply by talking about their own problems, in their cases, addiction and depression, and, and actually a fair degree of crossover, um, it, mm. it, it, it normalizes it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, they're probably, they probably feel the same way that, that yes. I do, which is that, well, why, why? it it's like it's a it's a part of the human condition and just you know it's no more shameful than any other part of the human condition no or any other illness I mean, yeah it's, 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 you know, any, yeah exactly any other illness is you know the way I, I see it as long as somebody isn't cruel to another person then um everything is is everything benefits from empathy and compassion and curiosity what was your childhood like in Cardiff? What was it, what were you? What was John Ronson like growing up? Uh, I was a I was a very um, banal and unremarkable, um, remarkable only in the sense that I was very unpopular. Were you? <laughs> yeah, and um, at Cardiff High School, um, I'm sh I have no doubt that that's followed me around my whole life, you know? Uh, well, how did the unpopularity manifest itself? Were you hung uh, up from the coat hooks or were you Basically, just... yeah. I remember one time I was, um, I was blindfolded and my hands were tied behind my back and I was stripped and thrown into the playground. Uh, I don't I, I can't if I, that's probably as bad as it got. Yes. Um, how do you, I mean, what, what's in your mind when that's happening? How are you? At the time, yeah. I like, just can't wait to get, Fuck out of Cardiff. Make it stop. Make yeah. it stop. Well, I was always, I, like, I always suspected that everything would be okay in the long run. Why? I don't know. I just, I had a sort of confidence in my, uh, I always thought, I'd, I'd, like, I was going to do okay in life. Confidence I, in your talent, you were about to say. Yeah, I thought something. once I, i tell you what really helps. My, my grandparents lived in London, um, in Portman Square, just next door to Selfridges. Quite fancy. I say. <laughs> when they died, we thought, we're going to make some money out of that flat. But then it turned out they were on a lease and it wasn't right. freehold. There was like five years but, left on the lease. Yes. So we made nothing. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, but because they lived in London, um, I spent, you know, frequently during my childhood, I, I would, you know, go to London. And when I was like 13 or 14, I would just, um, my parents and, you know, my grandparents would all be sitting and chatting and I'd like leave the room and I'd, and I'd have no money on me. But I'd get on a bus for as long as until the bus driver asked for my fare. And then I'd jump off the bus and then get on another bus. And I would just spend like entire days doing that, just going around London on different buses, jumping off and jumping on and jumping off. Exploring. Yeah, just exploring and just having my, you know, just exactly yeah, having some self-worth. And, and, uh, uh. and then I'd come back. After a while, I'd start to think, shit, I hope my parents haven't like called the police. And I'd come back a few hours later 
and they hadn't even noticed. <laughs> 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 no, so that's what the seventies was like. Yes, it's true. Yeah, seventies and eighties, they wouldn't even notice you. Have you, have you. have you had any catch up with any of the people you were at Cardiff High School with? Yeah. That had, I mean, did, did you want to? Did you feel any need for some sort of? No, uh, I, I don't feel like it. Like because it affects some people forever. But yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean you want to go back and, and yeah. wreak vengeance or, or, or forgive or whatever it may be. Well, actually, <clears throat> um, my my father died a couple of months ago, two months ago. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, he had Alzheimer's. He was very old. So I, I, so I went back and spent a few days in Cardiff. I went to the funeral. And my, my closest and probably, like, really kind of only real friend um, back then... Uh, this guy called Dick Johns was he he writes stories as well so he was giving a talk at Chapter Arts Centre so the day after my father's funeral I went to see Dick um, doing doing some talks and, and a whole bunch of people from Cardiff High were there so I did for the first time in in decades Gosh. start talking to you know kids I knew back then Beth and Morgan and people like that and um, and, and it was kind of slightly odd it's like it's you know it's none of, it's no one's fault that you know, because bullies don't think this is gonna this is gonna affect you for sure. You know, the person that I'm bullying is gonna be living with this for the rest of their lives. Um, so I don't blame them at all. And in fact Dick and Bethan were two people who didn't bully me. Right. But but I did walk away feeling very happy to see Dick and Bethan. Very pleased to see Dick because he's such a good storyteller. And he was he was in the office, like he's had some real success okay. in his life. Yeah. Um and but also feeling like you know, I'm trying to think of the right words. It's not like "fuck you" because no. because they didn't like intend to sure. to sort of sully my mental health. But I, I was sort of quite pleased. Like yes. I didn't want to get. I didn't want to. You know what? I left chapter thinking I could actually get sucked back into the psychodrama. Right. You know, like when you go back to school for. for you need to go back home for Christmas yes. and everybody's... And you're, still, you're resurrecting an argument from 1978. Yeah. Or, I... listening to you, I may have misunderstood, it's, it's, it's if you've been dumped and you've had this person in the back of your mind for years and they've never really left the back of your mind. There's always one or two in everybody's life and then you see him or her and there's nothing. And it's mm. an amazing relief to realise that actually, yeah. although there was a big part of your life, it's not as big as it was or as big as it could have been. That's not what I was thinking. No, no right. I was thinking one out of two then on my, yeah. my insights. <laughs> no, it was more. It was more um, these people right. still have the power to. Oh, hurt okay. Me. So they would. You could have gone back down the rabbit hole. Yeah, it were. that's what I was thinking. Okay. So I, I actually got out of chapter. I really liked seeing Dick's show, um, but I got out of there quite quickly. That's the truth of it. I, what, what was the talent you had faith in then when, when you were consoling yourself in, during these difficult times with the genuine belief? And I think the bus story is relevant to that because it speaks of escape. It was as if you always had a concept of being able to escape into a, mm. a, an interesting world. You might not have known a lot about it, but what was the talent that you felt you had? It, um, well, when I was 16, my, my mother uh, kind of convinced me to, to start volunteering at the local radio station. Uh, it was called CBC at the time. I think it's called Red Dragon now. Let's yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I started like volunteering there, and there was this DJ called Binder Singh, and he took me under his wing and put me on the air. And I used to like cut together bits of tape physically with razor blades. Yeah, literally incredible. And I, I actually put together um, bits of music that. At Cardiff High, they were doing something on the dangers of drugs and drinking. So I went into CBC and cut together little bits of songs, like a collage of little bits of songs that were about alcohol or drugs. So acts like at the time it was things like Doctor Feelgood and yeah. The Who, and and I put them all together and they played them in the they played it in the assembly. And afterwards, people were like, "Wow, you know, you've got like like we we still don't like you, but you have a you have a talent." Uh, and, and I just always thought I always thought I did have a talent uh, for for writing or for radio or for something like that. I tell you the weird thing about it though, and, and I really can't get to grips with this. I'm being completely honest, and I don't yeah. think these stories are making me look particularly good. But I'm just being well, completely well, honest. I, I think they probably yeah. are. But right. <laughs> well, honesty is a good thing. Well, quite <laughs> not long ago, when I was writing "Say You've Been Publicly Shamed," I had coffee with um, the former governor of New Jersey, Jim McGreevy. 
And we got talking about both of us being bullied as kids. He, right. he was gay and that's why he was bullied. Um, and I did, and we both got really upset. Yeah. And I was sitting thinking to myself, God, I'm in a coffee bar in Manhattan with the former governor of New Jersey. And, um, you know, and I, I've done really well in my life. And, and we're both really shackled by these, by this, thing that happened like such a long time ago like like my bad years of being bullied were from maybe the age of 15 to 18 so three years out of my 50 years mm. I, I don't understand why why it's followed me around like this shadow like my whole life because I think you know my social anxiety comes from it you know uh, I, I get really nervous about going to parties I tend not to go to parties um, I have, you know, I have a kind of lack of self-worth, which only stops being that way when I do good work. You know, so much of my self-worth is kind of wrapped up in, in the work that I do. How, how long does the tank stay full? How long after doing it, really? Because, I mean, the project that you've described as being your least favourite, Men mm -hmm. Who Stare at Goats, was for people who aren't aware, it was turned into a film starring George Clooney. So on your kind of, if that's the like, wah, wah, on the list of things, uh, all, all of the others you're clearly much happier with. But how long after, for example, publishing The Psychopath Test in 2011, did you begin to doubt yourself again or, um, or not? Sort of straight away. But really? it's not, yeah, but, but you know, then you read somebody, like you go on Twitter and somebody's you know, praising yes. it, and then you feel happy. To the heavens. Yeah, so then you sort of feel happy again for a bit. But but I never, like, you know, it means that you can't rest on your laurels. Maybe it'll happen one day. Maybe in about 10 or 15 years' time, I'll, I'll be able to just relax and look back on things and think it was okay. But but right now, the the problem is that I, um, you know, it's, it's I asked Randy Newman this question. I, I made a documentary years ago about Randy Newman called I Am Unfortunately Randy Newman. And I asked him... Um, um, <laughs> I asked him why he writes songs and he said it's how I judge myself and how I feel better okay. and I remember at the time thinking you know that's quite a sad mm. response but it's completely it, true of it's me it's who he is it's what yeah. you are yeah, you, can't, you can't help it yeah so when did that evolve, that 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 you know that moment in Wales with the splicing of the tapes and the selection of the music and a clever edit and a witty production process, isn't it? That that you mm. that you did. Yeah. There's still nothing there that you could have turned into a career. What what what, what would you describe as ambition? What, what was um, just at the time just getting out of Cardiff. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> uh, but because my mother, you know, sort of forced me to volunteer at the local radio. How station, how how hard did she have to bend your arm on that? I mean, did she quite, take you to the door of the? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Push you. Yeah, I, I wasn't academically gifted. Like I only got, I think I got seven O levels and two A levels. Really? Yeah, and um, so my mother kind of thought, you know, the only way he's going to make something out of himself is through some sort of practical experience. Right. So so she. Kind kind of forced me to do it and and she was right that's why, why what, do you think she thought radio would be a good or was there just not a lot of options in Cardiff um, well I mean I, I definitely glamorized all of that yes. stuff like I yes. would I remember like the age of like four or five like sitting there listening to uh um John Peel mm. and, the, and the Radio 1 chart show and pretending you know daydreaming you know that that, that sort of that I was the person yes. on the radio introducing the songs and then the Chapter Arts Centre, which was like my my saviour in Cardiff, um, I'd go there and see. I remember the double bills, like you know, I, I remember seeing a double bill of Scorsese's King of Comedy and Woody Allen's Zelig, oh. and and you know, really loving it, like clutching hold of these things. It's like you know, it's like a kind of um, you know, like a proof, life, yeah, or, proof that you were bigger than, yeah, proof that there was life outside, yeah, being, and, and that you got it. As well, in a way that some of the people at school wouldn't have done it. In a Maybe, or certainly, or just there was a world. It was like a glimmer into a world outside Cardiff yes. High and outside Cardiff. And, and um, this makes me sound anti-Cardiff, by the way, which I'm not at all. You keep worrying about how you're sounding. I promise you that you're, okay. you're sounding neither anti-Cardiff nor nor nor, nor right. unlikable. I promise. Yeah, you. and I'm not anti-Cardiff at all. Like, <laughs> like, you know, when I went back for my father's funeral a few months ago, you know, I, other than the fact that my father had died and it was very sad. <laughs> yes. Um, it, you know, it was nice to see my old, you know, to see Dick again. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. we went to the Hellenischen Golf Club, which was where the service was after the funeral. And, and it's home. Yeah. And I was thinking, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but I was thinking it's very pretty. 
like um, rolling hills. <laughs> it's like upstate New York. It's very pretty. Uh, yeah. So, um, back to the right. Back to your mum shoving you through yeah. the door of the radio station. It going well. It, you, yeah, you'd and be taken under wings, but but still and I not got, a career in the. Well, I got it. It got me a place at the Polytechnic of Central London right. uh, to do media studies, do journalism. Which um, at the time was one of probably only two such courses in the country. I yeah, think. and it was hugely like over. Like absolutely, somebody told me there was like I think they they accepted thirty people a year, and mm. there was like three thousand people yeah, applying. That, that sounds feasible. Yeah, um, my fellow alumni, I think they came slight just before me was Michael Jackson, who ended up being the head of the BBC and yeah. Channel Four. Just after me was uh, Charlie Brooker and Danny Wallace and uh, my friend Emmy the Great, the singer. So. You know, produce some really good people. Evidently, um, and I tell you, the second my mother dropped me off at the Halls residence on Bolsover Street, my life just transformed. Really? Yeah, I'd just turned eighteen, and my mother dropped me off, and I went into the Hall of Residence, and the guy in the next room, his name was Dippin' Joshy, said, "Oh, good, don't come for a drink." And that second, my life just transformed. I, I went from oh, that's magic. Yeah, being really and. Honestly, other than my anxiety, yes. um, my life's been really great. Had you, had, you, had you suspected? Because those three years, mm. uh, I mean, lots of people get bullied, rarely for that long, and that those three years are so formative. Mm. Had you suspected that, because you mentioned Zelig and King of Comedy giving you a window on another world, did you almost fantasise about a world where people were a bit more like you, or at least... You know where you had friends and you had a, a yeah. social circle, and you could talk about all the stuff that you found interesting without pretending that you found the stuff everybody else found interesting. Interesting, absolutely. And and college like gave me all of that. Um, and and oh, the other thing I was doing around the same time when I was seventeen was I was going off on my own to to Edinburgh and just hanging out with to the festival. Yeah, and basically just sitting there like. You know, to this day, you will see yes. awkward people just like me at the age of 17, yes. sitting in comedy clubs, just sitting and staring. Drinking and, it in. Yeah, drinking it in. And I was one of those people. I remember Mark, I wonder if he remembers this. I remember Mark Thomas coming up to me really crossly um, in like the late 80s or mid to late 80s. I was like, I see you. He said to me like, I see you, you know, at these clubs. I've seen you all the time and you just sit there and you're not doing anything. When are, when are you going to do something? Um, yeah. And I, I remember that as a real kind of like... So you're already an undergraduate by this point. If Probably. Yes. I, or, or maybe I hadn't even gone to college. Right. I, I was just like a college When are you fan. going to do something? Yeah. And Had you asked yourself that at that point? I, I wonder why Mark Thomas like... Picked up on it. Picked up on it. But he did. And, and I, I have no idea if he remembers that. But that was definitely a moment when I thought... He's quite an intuitive person, Mark Thomas, isn't he? And he's possessed of epic levels of compassion as well. I think the first time yeah. I met him, they were telling me about a time that him and some of the other comedians from that era had done a benefit and he couldn't remember whether they'd given the money to the miners or the dockers after the famous... <laughs> so, right. so he's looking at other people's experiences in a way that some, some comedians are too solipsistic to do. So perhaps yes. he just saw something above your head, a miasma of unfulfilled promise. Yeah, and it certainly motivated me. Did it? Yeah. And, and I what thought, did it motivate? I mean, because I still, early days, mm. what, 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 what would be the outlet for all of these almost like gathering forces within you? Well, what, what happened was after two years of college, um, where I just bummed around, and, but I needed to. I, was, like, I, I, I realized that if, if you wanted to have a good life in London, you needed to live in, in a squat because if you were renting on a student loan, student grant yes. in those days, um, you'd have to live in that Turnham Green. <laughs> and then there'd be like, you know, you'd be traveling back and it's forth. I like currently and... live in Turnham Green. Oh, really? <laughs> it's changed a lot, <laughs> right. I promise you. <laughs> um, I, I'm not dissing Turnham Green, I'm dissing the <laughs> travel time. Any more than time. you were a gardener. Right. No, I grant you, but you'd struggle to live in Turnham Green on a student grant these days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just for any estate yeah. agents listening. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to live in a squat, so you had a disposable income. Yeah, exactly. So so exa in, in squat, so there was this guy called Mark, Mark Cornell, who was like people say see that guy over there he's Mark Corness he's like involved in the squatters network so I so I plucked up the courage to, to go up to Mark Corness and say um, you know I hear that you know 
you know where people can squat and he was like yeah so we can so I started squatting and I and I squatted in Highbury and Islington and Bayswater some of my contemporaries were like squatting I remember the Libyan embassy got mm. got mm. squatted and people who I knew were squatting the Libyan embassy so we were living in these in these like beautiful Mansions, townhouses yeah, yeah I mean they were they were they were rats <laughs> that was the downside but we weren't playing red so we could hardly complain um, so for so for a couple of years, I just bummed around um, in squats and you know being hedonistic. And then I met I met two people. I met um, this band called the Man from Del Monte, and I met Frank Sidebottom and and his like crew. And they both kind of convinced me because I was the social secretary at the Polytechnic. After two years of college, I became the social secretary. Which means you book the acts and yeah. you run the kind of gig side of the yeah. college life. I used to book a comedy show every week called Frank's Wild Tuesdays. Um, and we, we had Jerry Sadowitz, we had Vic Reeves before he was wow. Vic and Bob. Yeah. That's how early it was. Uh, and, all, and all the great comedians of the time like did our thing and then and I, I was less good at booking bands because I didn't have any kind of particular sure. musical aptitude but um, I met Frank Sidebottom and I met the man for the Monty and they both said to me um, you should move to Manchester Frank was like come and be in the band and the man for the Monty was like come and manage us so I so I quit college and moved to Manchester and when I was in Manchester I started writing for the local listings magazine City Life I was already writing for the college newspaper in London. What year would this be, roughly? Uh, 87. So okay. just before Manchester. You never did theatre reviews, did you? No. Because I, I got a stinker in 1988 from City Life in oh, Manchester really? for, for a show I did with the youth theatre. I was just oh double-checking. So that, no, was, that, was that the first time you got money for journalism? Then? Yeah. Okay. I remember my lecturer, my college lecturer, David Cardiff, uh, who was this incredibly brilliant and charismatic man. He was married to Lynn Barber. Oh, wow, yes. Yeah, and, and he died. He died really young. He died in his 50s. And he said to me, he took me for coffee, and he said, you are the only person who writes for the college magazine who's got any writing talent. Wow. Um, Did you believe him? Yeah. Like, so, Ma so like Mark Thomas saying that to me yes. and David Cardiff saying that to me were really important like it was the the first praise I ever yes I ever really had and and um yeah so when I moved to Manchester I started writing for City Life I was getting paid like 40 quid for a film review and it just was obvious that that's that was what I was cracked up to do and from from the local press in Manchester straight to the Guardian pretty much yeah yes. I, I got because your talent was spotted yeah, well, what Are you good at knocking on doors, John? Are you good at Yes. You, well, are. I don't enjoy it because no. I'm, I'm introverted. Of course. But, but I'm good at it. Okay. Um, being a journalist, you have to be like a, a hustler yes. in every way. To get the story, to get the story placed, you know, you have to be a hustler. You have to be this tireless hustler. Mm. So I've, I've always been that. Um, actually, between City Life and The Guardian, I, I worked for a local radio station. The, the other person to take me under his wing was Terry Christian. Crikey. From the word. Really? Yeah. He was presenting the show. Another generous man. Yeah, he was really generous. Mm. Um, he basically got me a job at the local radio station, KFM. And then when he went off and did The Word, I took over his show. And I would co-present with Craig Cash and oh, Carolina Hearn. Seriously? Yeah. Good so the grief. three of us, me, Craig and Caroline, were doing these late night shows. And and we got we all got fired one day um, <laughs> because um, we weren't, we were too niche, basically. Right. So we all got fired. And that's how I got work down in London because there was this big campaign to get us reinstated. So suddenly Time Out and The Guardian were, were like aware of us. It was like a bit of a, it was noise that these three um, sort of maverick people up in Manchester had been like, you know, cruelly fired. There were like newspaper articles about it. And and I think that helped all of us, actually. Yes, so you rode that wave. Of, yeah, of, of, as did Craig and Caroline. And, absolutely. And they went off and did uh, Mrs. Merton. And I went down to London and started working for like Time Out and The Guardian and then eventually the BBC. Did you have in your mind an idea of the kind of journalist you wanted to be or were you trying lots of different things in the in the in the smorgasbord of, of, of the media and deciding what you then deciding uh, what you wanted to focus The latter, on? although it wasn't, it wasn't lots of things, it was no. one thing. Yes. I, I was um I was a big fan of 
Victor Lewis Smith yes. and Hunter S. Thompson and P.J. O'Rourke. The Gonzo. Yeah, the Gonzo. And Victor, what does that mean for people who don't who haven't heard the word before? How would you? I guess it means you know first like adventures where you are the first person. You know mm. where you're part of the story as the yes. writer. Obviously, rather than the outsider observing. Yeah, but the other <clears> thing that they were was kind of acerbic. I mean, like Victor yes. was kind of cruel, vicious. Yeah. And I, so for a while, I kind of pretended to be vicious. Uh, Did that come easily to you? Yeah, but it was it was kind of fake. Like I was good at being playing a character. Yeah, like Craig Cash and Caroline. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I remember. Ter- do you know the playwright Terry Johnson? Yes. Yeah, great playwright. Anyway, I wanted to to interview him one time for something. And he told me afterwards that the only reason why he wanted to meet me was to find out if I was as vicious in real life as I was on the page. So that's how vicious I was. Well, <laughs> and of course uh, you weren't. You were nowhere near as vicious in real life, were you? Nowhere you near. Terry Johnson <laughs> told, me, told me that he what was a, disappointed. I was going to say, yeah. what, a day, what an anti-climax. Yeah, he said, he said that to me. It's, it's anti-climax in meeting you. You're just this kind of soft liberal. So I mean, you could, <laughs> I often wonder, I don't know whether you've given this any thought, but, but the people who are professionally vile, which is probably a more lucrative mm. branch of the media in this country at this point in time than it was when you were on the way up. But but the mm. people who are professionally vile, I often wonder if they started off doing it as an act and yeah. actually realised it was more lucrative than anything else they had in their yeah. in their arsenal. I'm not, you know, when you're in this bubble of British media, I think you don't realise that the kind of oppositional sort of viciousness yes. of the British media is not, it's, that's not, that doesn't happen all over the world. That's quite a kind of, quite a British thing. Mm. And in some ways it's good, of course. Um, in other ways, it's not so good. It's not so good for someone like me. Like on the very, very rare occasions, on the, you know, vanishingly rare occasions that I'll do a show like Have I Got News For You. Yes. It's not good because I'm just, it's like a bad one night stand because I just don't thrive in that kind of, you know, oppositional... Um, That's not that oppositional either. I, I did yeah. a, a bit of a did you humble bad it for the first time last month. And I, 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 I didn't even think it was... I forgot it was a competition until they read out the scores at the end. Right. I was just desperately trying to make Paul Merton like me. Okay. <laughs> well, I, Ian... I dedicated myself to that. <laughs> well, Ian Hislop kind of had it in for me a little did bit. Did he? Yeah, I don't quite... It came as a, as a surprise. Yeah, well, there, then again, yeah. I suppose he, he, he is a, a you know, a, 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 a blades... Mm. Exposed type of performer, yeah. isn't he? But I, I, I much prefer something more contemplative. Yeah, and and empathetic and curious, yes. and you know, and also giving people the space to think and talk. Um, so yeah, so I suppose what what sort of turned me into the into the writer that the I became, John Ronson that I am today. Yeah, <laughs> I, I became a. I became a really big fan of Nick Broomfield. Right. He's a sort of documentary maker who, again, immerses himself in his subject in a way that was, if not unprecedented, then certainly very, very, very rare. Yeah. Nick, Nick too, was quite sort of passive aggressive. I mean, we all were at the time. Like me, Nick, uh, Louis Theroux. Yes. You know, we, we, we all sort of did that. And did you mix? Um, yeah. I know, I know Louis. I don't know Nick Broomfield. He stood behind me once. I was toying with the idea of making a documentary about the Daily Express. Okay. And the editor, Rosie Boycott, was friends with him. Mm-hmm. So he came in and, and got assigned to my department and just sat behind us grunting all day. Oh, really? you know, and just sort of barking quite aggressive questions at us and things like that. And <laughs> I'm not sure he came away with a full picture of So were you, were you the, the three names you mentioned, you mm-hmm. threw and Broomfield, would you have seen yourselves as part of the, of the same movement? Yeah. Okay. In fact, as a joke that. one time, um, uh, Sight and Sound asked me to write an essay about the movement. So as a joke, I gave us a, a name, like a French name. Um, I said we were Les Nouvelles Egotistes. And, and on, it's still there on Wikipedia, even though I was kidding. I'm looking that up. Yeah. It's really, it's been left up there. Yeah. Oh, that's better. Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> and, and that was an attempt to to be part of the of the story and be part of the Yeah. But I think process. we kind of, we all change so we all started off with that sort of air of moral superiority like uh, nick was better than south african neo-nazis yes. you know louis was better than the ku klux cloud i was better than islamic fundamentalists but i think all three of us um changed like and i think we all realized that being curious and empathetic and compassionate ultimately makes for like better stories and uh, I, I, I can't tell you sort of why they changed because so for instance Nick's film his most recent film about Whitney Houston is mm. is very Absolutely. you know it's it's really good and it's very sweet and very compassionate 
Louis's best stuff, I think, is, I mean, I, I really like Louis' stuff and, and my favourite of Louis' stuff is when he's much more curious and compassionate too. And well, I, There's I, the daughter of the um, the Baptist, what's the, the something Borough Baptist Church? Oh, yeah, the, the, Megan Phelps. Yes, that's an astonishing relationship that he has with her, isn't it? That, yeah. That he, just, he just really cares about her, it's clear to see, Funny rather enough, I've than got sort to, of standing back and going, hmm. yeah. I've got to know Megan pretty well. Yeah. When So You've Been Publicly Shamed came out, I got approached by, by the most unexpected people, uh, people who'd been shamed yes. or people who were feeling guilty about things they'd done in their lives. And, and, and some of them have become friends. And Megan Phelps is one of them. We're, we're pretty good friends she, now. She's in a better place now. Oh, she's, she's a great person. Um, she's about to be a really big star because um, uh, Nick Hornby's writing a movie based on her life oh wow yeah that reese witherspoon's company's making um so megan's about to become like this big and and right she's an amazing person i think well, when you well, made your first what was the first film that you made then was uh, that the uh, the first proper film i made was with saul dibb uh it was called new york to california a great british odyssey and it was a road journey from um from new york which is a little village in norfolk to a caravan site called California Sands a few miles down the road and we basically did this entire journey, this hour-long film of the two of us on the road, on this very short journey. How did uh, you pitch that? Um, or was it one of those occasions where you'd been was, trusted enough to... Yeah, there was a, there was one, no one trusted us. No. But, <laughs> Can't except think for, why. Right, <laughs> just one person who was, a, who was the commissioning editor for religion at the time, uh, Peter Grimsdale at Channel 4, and he really liked us and he he put me and Saul together and we made New York to California and then we made the following year we made Tottenham Ayatollah, which oh, was my Amabaku yes. film and that was the film that sort of really launched me and Saul. Into into a whole new level. I, I just, yeah. We'll talk about the butterfly effect now but before, just one other thing that again, looking back and I know you won't have seen these um, but the, the the previous guest on Unfiltered whose, whose story tallies the most with yours oddly is Armando Iannucci. Really? Not only because his first ever kind of exposure to the media was cutting stuff up with razor blades and splicing together his own projects. But also, I mean, perhaps even more bizarrely, when he ended up coming to, to London and meeting up with other people that some producers thought he might be able to collaborate with, he ended up meeting people like Steve Coogan. Mm. Um, and, and you ended Robert. up meeting people like Carolina Hearn and, and Craig Cash. Yeah. And, and, and the word that he used was serendipity. He feels lucky while describing... To my mind, he was describing a talent that was always going to be discovered. He still felt lucky that it had been. You, you mm. I, I'd love to know how lucky you feel because you simultaneously had this security blanket in Cardiff of thinking, I am, I am, it's not a word you'd have used, but I'm going to use it. I am better than this, or at least I'm bigger than this. Mm. And and yet having the anxiety. So how much of a role do you think luck has played in what you've described as a, as a very successful mm. career? It's, it's a really good question because like, you know, it's certainly certain really lucky things happened to me people people in high positions sort of spotted me and yes. decided to give me a chance so the people that i mentioned plus there was a mag there was a magazine at the time called the sunday correspondent yes. yeah and the editor ian parker kind of gave me a chance uh, chris heath on smash hits gave me a chance um so i feel very lucky that that they all kind of saw the saw the promise in me. But there was still the promise there. That's the point. Yeah, there was. You know, there there was the promise there. Um, Do you think there's any great undiscovered talent that, that that tried and failed to get into the kind of businesses you've been in? I mean, you hope not because you, hope you, not. you want the world to be egalitarian and a true meritocracy. But sometimes I fear that's not true. Sometimes mm. I, I think you know, being talented isn't enough. You have to put yourself out there. You have to be this kind of tireless hustler. Mm. Um, you need both. So there are, I'm sure, and I know one or two of them, like really, really talented people who didn't make it because they didn't knock on doors and yeah. they, they, didn't, they didn't put themselves it's out It's funny, there. Robert Webb spoke about being in his late 20s and him and David Mitchell had cracked the writing side of it, but it was beginning to look as if they were never going to break through on the performance side of it. And that, I think, would have consigned him to a life of feeling that he... Never quite crossed over the line. Right. What, what was it? Was it that first Omar Bakri film that made you feel you'd all right? I'm over the line now. This is where I want to be, and now it's up yeah. to me to consolidate and build on this. But this is where I want to be. That that film really kind of um, was important. It, it coincided with. 
these little high eight cameras coming out, these right. tiny little cameras, and that meant me and Saul could be, uh, we could we could just go out and do it, you know. It, it was almost like an early form of like you know podcasting or blogging. Mm. Like we we didn't have to wait for anybody to give us permission. We could just go out and film. These cameras cost nothing. You know, you didn't need a crew. So, and Tottenham Ayatollah was the first. I think other than this series at the time called Video Diaries. It was the first film ever shot on one of those little cameras to, to go on sort of mainstream TV right. at nine o'clock at night. And it really, it became very influential for that. For sure. Uh, because we really, you know, we we managed to sort of infiltrate this very closed world of Islamic militants, pe- people who it turned out would end up committing acts of terrorism. And we would never have managed it if we didn't look like scruffy students and we didn't have a tiny little camera so it was a really influential film in that way in in the in the technological way as well and when we track the the journey from one project to the next the the butterfly effect has its origins in so you've been shamed yeah because you were interviewing a pornographic actress Mm-hmm. While while making while writing that book and clocked the Chateau Marmont, I think. Yeah, did I pronounce that correctly? The Chateau. I, I say the Chateau Marmont, but Mar- I think right. some people say Marmont. Uh. You, you clocked that while she was dressed in a way that at work gets her um, the right kind of attention outside of work and the environment in which you met her. You were you were struck by how people reacted to. It. Yeah. So I was meeting. I'd never met a porn star before. I was in my room, the Chateau Marmont. <laughs> And uh, by the way, the first time I was supposed to meet her, she just completely forgot. And I was sitting in a restaurant for like three hours. No. Yeah. And finally, I went on Twitter and I went on her Twitter feed. Yeah. And she ju- and like two hours earlier, she tweeted, I know I'm supposed to do something. <laughs> <laughs> Why have I got that? <laughs> She'd completely forgotten. Anyway, so then the next day she came to my, she came to the lobby of the hotel and the the receptionist said, your guest is waiting for you downstairs. And so I went downstairs. And yeah, we, the, everyone else was dressed like I'm dressed in like, you know, yes. inconspicuous introvert, the in, the clothing of the media introvert, uh, except for Donna, who was dressed in this bright blue dress and looked, you know, incredible, looked like this kind of great mad peacock, you know, with a face that, that you just like, you know she'd seen some things yes, you know yes. she had stories to tell she'd lived an amazing life in in a in a shadowy world you know she was hugely intriguing to me so i walked towards her and i looked over at the receptionist and he was looking at her with a look of contempt uh, disgust yeah. like what are you what is someone like you doing at this hotel and and i thought to myself you know i bet you watch porn and i bet you're fine with Princess Donna when she's on your computer. Mm. And that that gave me the spark of wanting to do a show about porn, which which then turned into a show about the butterfly effect of the tech takeover of the porn industry. Did you know at that moment that you were going to have a proper look at doing something bigger? I, I'm fascinated by your creative process. I think so. I think that, that look definitely stayed with me. And I think once I'd finished So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I was thinking, what am I going to do next? Yes. And and I remembered that look. What happened next was I, I started reading um, blogs by porn people. Mm. I just started meeting porn people. I met Stoyer. I met Chanel Preston. These are like big names in porn, and they all agreed to meet me. Yes. Uh, and Did they know your work? Um, um Chanel Preston did because she's friends with this guy, Connor Habib, who's a gay porn star. He's right. a fan of mine. Okay. He, he tweeted me one time and said, you know, I'm a fan of yours. I'm a gay porn star. If you want to know any what more, want to know more about my work, just Google me. Mm. So I Googled him and just immediately saw these, you know, massive close-ups of his anus. <laughs> Such history must be a thing to behold. And, uh, it's funny, I, uh, he came to one of my talks in at a bookstore in Los Angeles and I told that story and he was in the audience and he just went, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Brilliant. Uh, so, so she knew who I was, and I was just sort of thinking, what, what story could I possibly do about porn? Yes. And and then I found I started reading blogs by people like Stoyer, and the same name kept coming up, which was Fabian, and and the porn world was very annoyed with a man called Fabian. So I started trying to find out who's Fabian, and it turns out that Fabian's the man who basically became hugely rich from giving the world free porn on sites like Pornhub. 
and a giant flow of money went from the San Fernando Valley into Fabian's pocket. Specifically into his... Yeah. Because he was a tech entrepreneur who just spotted a... Uh, yeah, uh, uh, he spotted that unusually for porn, they were behind the curve right. when it came to tech. Normally, they push the technology to its limits. Don't exactly, they? but not with the internet. You know, YouTube was already going, yeah. and nobody had thought, let's do YouTube for porn. So Fabian essentially did it. And uh, that, and that is, <clears throat> it seems to me, these these are the these are the, the moments where you feel like you've you're panning for gold and you see this name keeps coming up because you use the mm. phrase the tech takeover of porn at this point before you started coming across his name in these books you didn't know there'd been a tech takeover no, of didn't porn. know anything about so it's almost world. like the, 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 this, the, the, these things start coalescing yeah. in your mind and you think this is a story that no one else has told and that's the first point at which you think this yes. could be my next project it was hiding in plain sight that's the phrase um, and actually um, the fact that nobody else had told this story, that's always really important to me. I, I always yes. want to tell a story that other people don't do, which has its pitfalls too, because like, I would really love to do all this sexual predator stuff that's happening, um, but I worry about it because, because of the competition I'd be in with other journalists and because I'm slow. Right. So I always... So, so it does cut down. Like wanting to do a story that nobody else does does cut down my possibilities. Because you're interested in things that have been told, and you might have something new to say about them. But you, you, you as you say, you, you yeah, it'd be of, stressful because yes. I'm slow, you know. And whereas people on the New York Times, they're fast, right? So yeah. Um, now my real epiphany uh, was on the set of Stepdaughter Cheerleader Orgy, okay, where a couple of things happened which were just <laughs> astonishing to me. There's a few days in my life where, like everything changed. And one of them was when I was writing them and I suddenly had this brainwave. Um, they all, you know, these conspiracy theorists all believe that there's a secret room, you know, inside which a shadowy cabal secretly rules yes. the world. Yes. Why don't I hook up with them and we'll try and find the secret room? Yes. So that was one real epiphany. Yeah. And then my second, another epiphany was, uh, was all these leading psychologists believe that psychopaths rule the world. There's a particular mental disorder that's so powerful, it rules the world. Why don't I learn how to be a psychopath spotter and journey into the corridors of power? Uh, and that's what gave me the idea to write the psychopath test. And another epiphany happened on the set of Stepdaughter Cheerleader Orgy. Stepdaughter Cheerleader Orgy. Yeah, it was when the, the second cameraman, it's very rare for there to be a second cameraman on right. porn sets these days because all the money's gone to Fabian uh, <laughs> to spend on his aquarium that's so big it's got his own diver. Uh, but, um, but the second cameraman, Nate, said to me, rare day for me shooting real porn. And that, so I was like, well, what do you do normally? And he said, customs. Right. And I said, what's customs? He said, oh, bespoke porn. We make entire porn films for just one viewer. So when, when Nate told me that, I was like, Here we I'm, go. I'm going to get in the bespoke porn world. Because what an insight into people's inner lives. Isn't it? Yeah. And, and some of the inner lives that you unearth are, 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 are staggering. It's a seven-part mm -hmm. audio series mm -hmm. <clears throat> that you've done with Audible. So it's available on iTunes and um, all the other outlets. Yeah. How do you decide what medium to employ? For, um, for, for a project, I mean, why not a book? There'll probably be a book, yeah. will there? On this, or? I'm not sure actually. My well, there you go then. So there isn't yeah. there, nothing. I can take nothing for granted. How, how come? Yeah. Why, well, why for this one, a seven-part audio series? Well, a few things happened. Firstly, I noticed I, I was listening more and more to podcasts. Yes, uh, and I've always so here's a tip actually for kind of budding you know journalists. I, I think it's always a really good idea to to try and work for people that you yourself are a consumer of because yeah. there'll be a kind of shared yes. um, interest. And right from the beginning, you know, I, I wanted to work for Time Out because I liked Time mm. Out, same with The Guardian, same with Channel 4. And these days it's it's podcasting and, and Audible. Like, like I listen to audio books more than I read physical books. Okay. And uh, also lots of people listen to me on audiobook instead of reading my books. Mm. So when Audible came along and said, do you fancy doing, you know, we, we want to branch out into kind of original stuff. Um, it helped that they had a budget. Yes, most Most podcast companies don't have much money and, and I work in such a kind of labor-intensive way, I yes. need money. You know, I'll fly all the way to Los Angeles for what will turn out to be 50 seconds right. of material. Yes. Uh, so I need somebody who's willing to spend that kind of money of on, on the show. And really, all I can, there might be other companies, but the only two companies I can think of that have that kind of money are Audible and This American Life. Mm. Um, so it all sort of all just came to together. Blade. And my American publisher said to me, I, I don't want you to write a book that's, really? that's about porn. 
Well, because... He said um, it, it will really cut down, you know, he basically, you know, he, he felt, and I, you know, I think he's probably right. Yes. He felt that I'm not going to, in America, it's really important to get on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Or, right, you are. Or to get on Morning Edition or, yes. you know, these these big NPR shows. And they're not going to invite you on to talk about, to talk about porn. So cheerleader. Stepdaughter team. Audrey. Uh, as it turned out, actually, the, the Butterfly Effect has, has been a hit. Yes, precisely. Yeah. A big hit. Yeah, but whether it would have been a big hit as a book, Jeff may well have been right. And also, it keeps you fresh. I mean, new new, uh, new platforms, new media. I mean, you yeah. know. It was real fun as well. Yes. Bringing out Say You've Been Publicly Shamed was not fun. Why not? It, it was noisy, like oh, everyone had an opinion. Yeah, of course, of course. And everything in it was, 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 it was an ongoing fight, wasn't it? It was yeah. an ongoing argument. Exactly. So... I, I also wanted to do something that was more fun. And I thought, correctly as it turned out, that doing a podcast with my producer, Lena, yes. the seats, excuse me, would, would be more fun. And I mean, it's, 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 you're here to encourage people to go and to go and listen to it. So I don't, I don't want to exhaustively explore what's in it. But I think you're right to, to cite the notion of customs as being the most interesting discovery. Yeah. But other really, really interesting stuff like... Um, well, one of my favourite things, in fact, the thing that stays with me is the most resonant. Again, it happened on the set of Stepdaughter Cheerleader Orgy, where the director said to me, you know, I never used to make films with titles like that. And I was like, what, what did your films used to be called? And he said, the very first porn film I ever made was called Women of Influence. Good grief. And the problem is that because of the tech takeover of porn, it's become like an arms race of search engine optimization. Yeah. Everybody has to pile as many keywords into their film titles as possible, like Stepdaughter, Cheerleader and Orgy, to kind of, you know, get their way up the Google search rankings. So I said to Mike, does that mean there's people who, who fall between the keyword cracks, who can't yeah. get work? And he was like, yes, if you're a 25-year-old adult film actress, uh, you're basically unemployable because you're too old to be a teen and you're too young to be a MILF. You're just attractive, and just attractive isn't a searchable term. And yet once, that would have been the, the yeah. key demographic of porno stars. Yeah. So I, I was thinking, like, isn't that's the internet all over, right? Yeah, isn't, isn't that it? political isn't discourse it? on Twitter if yeah. you're not a teen yeah. and you're not a milf, if you're not like a, if you're not like a kind <laughs> of old right lunatic? That's yeah. incredible. So I identify, politically, I identify with the 25-year-old adult film actress <laughs> as a kind of left-leaning <laughs> moderate. I'm not but a teen. But then there's the I'm saturation element as well. So they can have months mm. of or weeks even, of, of uh, decent earning. And then suddenly, because of the nature of the internet, they're everywhere and they're, they're, there's no need to pay them to do anything else ever again. Yeah, and, and the valley's just inundated with 18-year-old you know, women who've grown up on Pornhub and think that looks cool. Mm. Um, you know, there's no longer an, an outlaw status to porn. And of course, in some ways, you know, as somebody who doesn't believe in stigma, sure, uh, that's good. But in, in other ways, it's bad because it means their shelf life is incredibly short. They, you know, unless you you could somehow cut through, and some women do. There's a there's a there's a woman called Janice Griffiths who's a big star now, and uh, so some women cut through, but most work for three weeks, don't work anymore, go back to where they came from, and now have to live in terror that. You examine this as well. You have one mm -hmm. one girl who finds out her mum yeah. has been doing porn because the films some of her classmates see a nurse, On Pornhub. A nurse yeah. who loses his job yeah. who'd given up. Because uh, hypocrisy over and over again, yeah. you know, it's just it's hypocrisy. And the custom stuff, I mean, to give the kind of headline examples, there's one man in Norway pays a... Uh, pays, the man in Norway pays porn stars to, to destroy his very valuable stamp collection. So me and Lena became like obsessed with like, you know, tracking down stamps man, tracking down condiments man, gremlins man, to find out their stories, like what led them to this moment. How much is Fabian worth now? Do we know? Uh, I don't know, but I do know that he's got his own diver who comes to clean his coral reef <laughs> in his aquarium. As, uh, as um, this artist, Bob Gibson, said to me, who'd visited Fabian's house, he said, that's next level, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, every time I meet you, I always ask what you're going to do next. I'm not sure you've ever told me. Do you know? Uh, yeah, I, I can't give you that the details. But, um, <laughs> the other thing I did this year was I, I, I co-wrote with Bong Joon Ho uh, the movie Okja course, on yes, Netflix, and and it was it was kind of a hit. Yes. I, well, it was a pit. I don't even need to say kind of. No, it, was, it was a hit. Huge. And as a result, I've been offered a couple of screenplays. So even though it's out of my comfort zone, like I, I feel very confident in in nonfiction and much less confident in fiction. 
I'm going to spend the next year working on these screenplays. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, a couple of for the for, for the company A24 who were who who gave the world Moonlight and uh, um, they they they're just about to bring out this film which I would recommend to everybody called Lady Bird, which is starring Saoirse Ronan and directed by Greta Gerwig. They're, they're such a great independent film company, so I feel very lucky that they've taken an interest in me. And I, I would recommend the Butterfly Effect similarly to everybody, and and also all, all of. I'm not going to lie to you; I haven't read Club Class, but all of John's so. all of John's other work, <laughs> them Adventures with Extremists, The Men Who Stare at Goats, um, The Psychopath Test. So you've been publicly shamed, and now, as we say, the Butterfly Effect. I unreservedly recommend every single one of them. John Rosser, thank you so much. James, it was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And as is the tradition by this point in the series, I'm joined now by the producer of Unfiltered Rich to sort of cast a quick glance into the rearview mirror. Um, I, 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 every single time I interview John, and it's only three or four times, I don't want to make it sound like I've done it a hundred times, <laughs> um, I, I, I find that we reach the end of our allotted time together and think that we could have carried on for, for five times longer. And that mm. was an hour. That's yeah. the longest time I've ever had with him. And I still got to the end and felt, crikey, we, we, we did more than scratch the surface, though. I think. Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting to hear him on the other end of mm. the Inquisition. Um, and he's really open and honest and seemed like forthcoming, like as you would hope, because that's what he expects of the people he talks to. So there were a couple of moments where I, I wondered whether he felt he was being too forthcoming. There were a couple of moments where he sort of seemed to think he was being a bit too honest. Where? What do you what do you think? Well, I, the, the, I think he was worried uh, about the, the talking about his childhood stuff. I think I don't know whether he was worried that mm. he was giving up too much of himself or he was worried that he was sounding a little bit when he says he wanted to stress that he, he wasn't slagging off Cardiff and he wanted to make sure that he was mm. um coming across in the way he wanted to come across as which I think is part of his genius actually is that constant blend of vulnerability and fearlessness yeah and care care at the same yes. time yeah he really cares about the people that he talks to and that comes across in the butterfly effects you know like he was saying when people approach those kind of topics they sometimes do it from a position of moral superiority and he absolutely doesn't do that you know he's like buckets of empathy he really yes. cares about these people and cares about their stories which is why I think he is the kind of person that he is and the kind of journalist that he is I'm going to go and dig out that article he wrote, pretending that him, Louis Theroux, and Nick Broomfield were the Les Nouvelles egotistes. <laughs> Send me it, will you? You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. <laughs> 